Exodus 20:1 through 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gate. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. What Ashley just read for us, those were not the Ten Commandments. Now, most people would call those the Ten Commandments, but they were not the Ten Commandments. You know, when we actually study the Scripture, do you know what the Bible never actually calls what Ashley just read? The Ten Commandments. The Bible calls them the Ten Words, or just the Word. These are the Ten Words. And they're significant words. These Ten Words are the only words that the people of Israel heard directly from the mouth of God Himself. Now, how many times have you heard somebody say, you know, I really wish that God would speak to me in like a, a voice from heaven and give me some, some direction or give me an answer? How many, maybe you've said that sometimes. Well, well, friends, the people of Israel got exactly what it was that we so often flippantly asked for and what was their response. Exodus 20, verse 19, the people said to Moses, You speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. You know, Israel got what you and I so often nonchalantly ask for, the Lord's voice from heaven, and their response is never do that again. 
Friends, to hear the voice of the Almighty God is no trifling matter. The Israelites heard it in all of its terror and all of its power and all of its wonderfulness, and they said, we don't want to do that again. And so then Moses became a mediator, a prophet, to whom the Lord then spoke his words, and Moses turned and spoke them to the people. And we'll see later on in the Old Testament law here that there were other words, other statutes, other rules that the Lord taught His people, but all of those were mediated through Moses. The Lord spoke them privately to Moses, and Moses turned and spoke them to the people. But these words, the ten words, were special. Because these are the words themselves that the people of Israel heard with their own ears spoken by God from Mount Sinai for everyone to hear. And why? Because these ten words are the essential core of the covenant. These words are the fountainhead from which all the other law and the statutes that we're going to find in the Old Testament flow. The Bible never calls these commands because in a sense these words are not really a law code as we understand law codes today. I mean, they're really so general, general it's hard to enforce them. I mean, when we get to that tenth word, the one that prohibits coveting, that's a heart condition. How are you going to legislate that one? How's a judge going to rule on that one? These ten words frame a worldview that governs the relationship between God and His people and guides the redeemed in relationship with one another and with all humanity. See, by His grace, what have we seen so far? God has delivered His people from slavery in Egypt so that they can be in relationship with Him. You know, somebody, one commentator noted, we have 19 chapters of deliverance and grace before we get to law. Because by His grace, unmerited, unearned, undeserved, He's delivered His people. And He reminds them of that in verse 2. Verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. And he says, I brought you out, why? To have a relationship with me. I delivered you from slavery in Egypt so that you could have a relationship with me. So these ten words are the Lord revealing himself to his people. This is the right way to understand me. This is the right way to live in relationship with me. This is the right way to live in relationship with one another. Because, friends, remember, God didn't deliver His people from slavery so that they could then follow a philosophy or an abstract set of principles. He brought them out of Egypt. He brought them out of slavery so that they could be in relationship with Him, a living and personal God. So these ten words, these aren't arbitrary God wasn't up there in heaven going, well, I'll randomly pick and choose what I'm going to command them. God says, hey, listen, because of who I am, this is what it means to live in right relationship to me. And because of who you humans are, this is what it means to live in right relationship with one another. These ten words are a worldview, a revelation of who God is and of who we are and how relationships were designed to work. So let's consider these ten words. What do we learn? What do we learn about our relationship with the Lord and with others? And then we're going to take some time to consider our relationship today 
as those who follow Jesus Christ with these ten words. Now, the first three words all have to do with living in right relationship to the Lord, to Yahweh. The first word, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, Yahweh, the Lord, is the one who called and redeemed Israel, and he says, I have the right to exclusive allegiance. Now, to us today, that may not be shocking, but you need to remember, Israel just spent 400 years in Egypt. The Egyptians had a pantheon of all kinds of gods. And so for 400 years, they were immersed in it. They witnessed it. Many of them participated in the polytheistic worship, the worship of many gods, the gods of Egypt. In fact, in that day, there were so many so-called gods. These gods regularly tolerated the simultaneous worship of many gods. So for many people in that day to claim exclusive worship, or even more that there's only one God, well, that would be unthinkable. But here comes the Lord, and He starts off and He says, I will have no rivals. There are no other gods. And in that day and age, you know what they probably thought? How arrogant and intolerant and exclusive. It's a good thing we never hear those accusations today. We, too, live in a world of many gods and many truths. So how can you claim your God's the only true God? How can you claim Jesus is the exclusive way? How arrogant and intolerant you are to claim any kind of truth. But remember, the ten words came after the ten plagues. Ten plagues where the Lord decimated the Egyptian pantheon, where He showed Himself victorious and powerful over every single one of the gods of Egypt decimating them. And then he says, I am the Lord God, and you will have no other gods before me, no other gods alongside me, for there are no other gods. I am the true God, and I bear no rivals. The second word in verses 4 through 6 is that he says, I have the right to proper representation. You know, verse 4, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. God says no finite image of creation is sufficient to represent the infinite God. Yahweh's a living God and statues and idols, those are lifeless. A statue can do nothing, but the living God can do all things. And friends, if you and I If you and I are allowed to shape an image of Yahweh, shape an image of the Lord, we're likely going to shape Him into our own image. Or at least into an image that we find desirable and tolerable. You know, the old saying goes, God made man in His own image, and then man returned the favor. It's as we sang last Sunday, you are not a God created by human hands, but how we try how we try. I mean, you've probably heard someone say, or maybe you yourself have said, my God is not like fill in the blank. Or usually followed closely by, my God is fill in the blank. More loving, less judgmental, not as old-fashioned. Friends, that's carving an image of God. We no longer use chisels and mallets to carve an image out of wood or stone. We use our words to carve an image of God 
that's either in our own image or that's tolerable or desirable to us. And we're constantly trying to carve images of God that are acceptable to the culture, to popular opinion, to the latest trends, to our own whims and preferences. So God says, no, your images of me are unable to truly represent me, to contain me. They distort me and they wrongly limit me. All of your images of me are idols, so there will be no images of me. And consider the Lord's warning in verses 5 and 6 about visiting the iniquity of the parents on the children to the third or fourth generation. In that time, three to four generations likely lived under the same roof. And so what we find here is a warning for how easy it is for faithlessness of one member of the family to influence and lead the whole household and generation after generation astray. But yet in verse 6 we find hope. We find the grace of the Lord. Because while the consequences of disobedience are spoken of in terms of living memory, three to four generations, what does the Lord say about His faithfulness? He says, my faithfulness is to a thousand generations. Friends, do you know how long a thousand generations is? That is longer than recorded human history. Friends, no matter how great our faithlessness and suffering because of it, he says, my is greater. That is the grace of God to us. So the message here is clear. No matter how long you've strayed or how far you've strayed, turn from your idols, whether they're false gods or whether they're false representations, representations of the true God, you shall not make for yourself an image. The third word in verse 7 declares that the Lord also has the right to speak for Himself. He's reserving the right to speak for Himself. He says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, that's not merely a prohibition against using the name of the Lord as profanity. The verse literally says, you shall not bear the name of Yahweh your God worthlessly. Worthlessly. See, the warning was that the Israelites shouldn't use the Lord's name for any worthless or personal, or malevolent, or frivolous purposes. Bear you, to bear the name of the Lord, if you bear the name of the Lord, you represent Him. To bear the Lord's name is to represent Him. So He says, represent truthfully and accurately what the Lord has said and what He desires. You know, many use the name of the Lord in vain to baptize their own desires. God told me. I prayed about it. God gave me peace. And they use God's name kind of like a trump card. You know, God has told me that it's okay to do exactly what I wanted to do anyway. What a coincidence. What confirmation. God told me so it must be right. And we use the name of God in vain. Because we put His name on things that He would never have His name put on. We represent Him falsely. The commandment warns Israel, do not put God's name, do not put His stamp of approval on anything that God does not say is good or anything of which God does not approve. The third word says God has the right to speak for Himself and to be represented truthfully. Now, the fourth word about the Sabbath, this is a transitional command. You know, we found the first three commands. They were all about Israel's relationship with the Lord. 
And we're going to find that commands 5 through 10 are all about Israel's relationship with one another. But the fourth, the Sabbath command, is a transitional command between the two. Because while the Sabbath day is set apart to the Lord, Moses makes clear that it's observed for the benefit of humanity. It's set apart for the Lord, but observed for the benefit of humanity. Now, now the word here about the Sabbath, it declares that all of the household had the right to rest. They all had the right to rest. Now, this, this would have been amazing in the ancient Near East. This would have startled people because other societies divided work and leisure among class lines. The upper class, the powerful and important, got leisure, but the lower class, they worked. And however, uh, and unlike all the other Near Eastern law codes of the time, the Sabbath declares that all, master and slave alike, should rest. The Sabbath protected the very most vulnerable workers from exploitation and overwork. Without the command of Sabbath rest, an Israelite might be tempted to make his household work just as unrelentingly and unjustly as Israel was worked when she was in slavery in Egypt. To remember the Sabbath was to remember the deliverance. You once had no rest. Remember that? Remember when you were slaves in Egypt and you were never allowed to rest? Well, now you're going to rest, and so will your slaves and your servants and all the members of your household. In fact, later on, when the prophets attack Sabbath breaking in the Old Testament, in the same breath, we often hear them condemn the Sabbath breakers for their greed, their exploitation, and their maximizing their own gain at the expense of others. Because the Sabbath was given as a gift of rest and a practice of trust in God's provision. You see, the Israelites needed to understand they didn't have to ceaselessly work themselves and their households in order to provide for their needs because they could rest in the provision of God. They could stop their work because God would be faithful to provide. And stopping and resting regularly was evidence of their trust and a time to give thanks for His goodness and His provision. So remember the Sabbath day. And keep it holy. And now, now he moves on, having talked about the relationship with God, this transitional commandment. Now he talks about human relationships in words 5 through 10. The fifth word in verse 16 declares the right of parents to respect. I thought I'd spend the next hour on this one. The Hebrew word translated here as honor literally means to give weight to as in to give high value to. The opposite of it, it literally means to make light of, as in to have no value or to despise. So it's saying give weight to, give honor to your parents. Depending on your stage of life, respect might not mean unquestioning obedience of your parents, but it does represent a value, a weight given to the family relationship. And notice that this, this, there's a promise attached to this commandment, to this word. The promise is one that we find repeated in Deuteronomy and through the rest of the Old Testament. It recognizes that the survival of Israel as a nation is dependent upon the health and integrity of her household. You will live long in the land as you honor your father and your mother. 
Because, friends, the breakdown of the family means the breakdown of society. It means that Israel will not be long in the land. Because once a culture no longer gives weight or value to the family, the culture inevitably breaks down. I'm glad we've never seen that happening. That was a joke. Also note, honor your father and your mother. Dad and mom, male and female. Binary, biological, not interchangeable, not redefinable. Honor your father and your mother. Family is a priority and at the center of God's design for society and the stability of society. Threaten that, and you threaten the stability of society itself. The sixth word declares that my neighbor has a right to life. Now, the word that's used here, you should not kill, is a general word for kill. It's not the word for murder. There are times when the Bible makes clear that killing is allowed, but what it says, I'm sorry, the, the Bible here says you shall not murder. It doesn't use the general word for kill. Let me get that correct. What it's talking about is it's banning intentional, premeditated murder. And in fact, later on, we're going to find that this same principle is applied to the call to proactively prevent accidental death. And what is unique here in this command, friends, like the Sabbath command, is that unlike the Babylonian laws, unlike the other Near Eastern laws, there's no distinction here between status, race, gender, or class. All are equally afforded the right to life. You see, this was unique. Friends, this was unique. Because in other Near Eastern cultures, the laws were applied very differently. And those who were of higher class and importance, or those who were men, had greater right to life. And others, not so much. Friends, this law right here meant that women's lives mattered. Poor lives mattered. Children's lives mattered. Because all were equally afforded the right to life under this word. Now, you might remember that thousands of years after the ten words were spoken, Jesus came and he taught us in the Sermon on the Mount and, and went a little bit deeper on this command. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 22, you've heard it said, of the, it was said of, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, anyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus went even deeper. And he revealed the intention of this commandment. He warned against harboring anger and murdering our neighbor with our hearts or our words and not just with our hands. And he did the same with the seventh word. The seventh word calls for fidelity in marriage. You see, this word affirms, as does the fifth word, that the integrity of the family is a matter of national security. Do you know, in ancient Israel, adultery was a capital offense. Because anything that attacked the stability of the family unit was a threat to the nation's survival and to the nation's relationship with God. And we also see this principle expanded and applied to protect the boundaries of sexual expression according to God's design. We'll see this same command applied in later on laws that are in the Old Testament. Adultery is any sexual expression outside of the one man, one woman in marriage relationship. Because the Lord has created it to be husband and wife 
father and mother, man and woman, and anything else outside of that is a violation of this word and of the way that God has created and designed the world to be. And Jesus came and he taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 28. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, Jesus warned us against a superficial hands-off policy, and he called us to a hearts-off policy. But the problem is, while the law can address the external actions, Jesus goes deeper, and he says there's more behind this command. Adultery and lust of the heart is just as serious and to be avoided. The eighth word declares the right of my neighbor to own property. You shall not steal. And we find in the rest of the Old Testament law that theft was punished by, rem- by uh, remediation, by restitution, by restoring and repaying what had been taken. And friends, again, this stands in contrast to the ancient Near Eastern codes of that day because there were a wide variety of penalties for thievery, in- including mutilation and even death for theft. And we still see this sometimes in the Middle East today. Moreover, we find that in the Israelite law that all were treated equally under the law as far as theft goes, despite the social rank of the victim or the perpetrator. And the ninth word also declares the right of my neighbor to justice. You shall not bear false witness against his neighbor. And yes, we should apply this, that all of our interactions should be um, marked with honesty. But there seems to be here a special focus on a legal setting where I might testify against my neighbor in court. The Hebrew word for worthless is used here just as it was used in the third word. In the third word it said, don't use the name of the Lord worthy. And here in the ninth word it says, don't speak worthless words against your neighbor. So just as I shouldn't use the name of the Lord worthlessly for my own gain, I should not use my word worthlessly for my own gain against my neighbor's loss. Both the Lord and my neighbor have the right to accurate and truthful representation and dealing. And finally, the tenth word, my neighbor has the right to marital and economic security. See, this word brings us to the heart of the matter, doesn't it? Because really it's a matter of the heart. Covening is a matter of the heart. The heart is the source of so much of what the previous commandments prohibited, isn't it? Really, the tenth word kind of brings us full circle. Because when I violate the tenth word, then that means that I've set my heart and my affections on something else that's going to take the place of God and would violate the first word. Coveting will lead to murder. It will lead to adultery. It will lead to theft. It will lead to dishonesty because I want, there's something that I want and I will do what I need to to get it because I've elevated that to a status of a God in my life. And we can see why the Bible never calls these ten words laws, because how could a judge make a determination or any law be enforced to prohibit the coveting of my heart? These words were never meant to be a law code as we understand law codes. They're principles of a worldview that would govern the relationship between God and His people and would guide the redeemed in their relationship with one another and with all of humanity. But friends, this leads us 
to the question that I posed at the end of our time together last week. Today we are under the new covenant, one initiated by Jesus Christ. So are we still bound by the laws of the old covenant that was mediated by Moses? Are you and I bound to obedience to these ten words? And I ask this today because none of us here is currently living as though we are bound by these Ten Commandments. Every person in this room flagrantly, unrepentantly, and regularly disregards and violates the fourth of the Ten Commandments. None of you have been remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And maybe you will go, hold on, Adam. We're here today in the worship gathering. So how can you say that we're Sabbath violators? And friends, you are here today, which I'm so glad for. The problem is the Sabbath that the Lord commanded His people to remember and keep holy is Saturday. It's the seventh day. In fact, the Lord makes that explicit twice in verse 10 and 11. The Sabbath is the seventh day. It is Saturday. And you might then object to me and go, well, Adam, with Jesus' resurrection, Jesus rose on the first day of the week. He rose on Sunday. And that means the Sabbath has been changed from Saturday to Sunday. And friends, you can say that all you want, but the Bible never says that. The Bible never says that the Sabbath has changed from Saturday to Sunday. It never says that it's changed from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. In fact, in the New Testament, we read that many of the Jewish Christians They continued to go to synagogue and observe the Sabbath on Saturdays. And then they would gather with other Christians to worship together on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, on Sunday. So in practice, friends, you and I do not act as though we are obligated to keep these ten words. Now, others might respond, well, maybe we're obligated to keep the other nine, but not this one. But friends, the commandments are a package. As we were reminded last week, the law is a whole. James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, writes in James chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. James cites two of the Ten Commandments. And his point is, you can't pick and choose commandments, friends. You either obey it all, or you've obeyed none of it. Because to violate any one part of the law is to violate the whole of the law. So, friends, by not following the Sabbath command, by not keeping the literal Sabbath on the seventh day on Saturday and not keeping it holy, you and I are clearly in violation of the whole of the Ten Words. So how are we, as Christians today, to understand our right relationship to these ten words? The Apostle Paul is helpful in explaining it. The Apostle Paul himself was part of Israel to whom the Old Covenant and the ten words had been delivered through Moses. Yet, he came to know Christ and to trust Jesus Christ in his salvation. So he received the New Covenant. Well, how did he understand his old covenant obligations and his new covenant? In his letter to the Corinthians, in Corinthians chapter 9, verses 20 through 21, he says, 
To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, that is the law of Moses, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, although I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. Well, what's the point? Paul says, now a Christian and yet part of Israel, he makes a clear distinction. He says, I'm no longer bound by the law delivered by Moses. No longer bound by the ten words, but as a member of the new covenant that supersedes the old. I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. Well, what is the law of Christ? What does that mean and what does that mean to our relationship to the ten words? Well, as we heard last week, At the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, the law that Jesus refers to includes the ten words mediated by Moses. Jesus says He hasn't come to do away with the law and the ten words, but to fulfill them. Jesus' life and His ministry fulfilled. They complete God's intention for the Old Testament law. And what was God's intention? Jesus makes it clear when he was asked, what's the most important commandment? He didn't name any of the ten. What's the most important commandment, Jesus was asked, and he replied in Matthew 22, starting in verse 37. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You know, the, the word translated here as depend literally means hang. He says all the law, including the ten words, they hang on these two commands. These two commandments are the summary. They're the purpose. They're the intention on which everything else hangs. The Lord's purpose in the law is that His people might learn who He is, what it looks like to love Him and to love their neighbor. Because love is the fulfillment of the law. The Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He wrote in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then he gives us the Ten Commandments. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfiller of the law. Friends, we are not bound by the ten words, but we do live the law of love as fulfilled, lived, and given to us by Jesus Christ. Because love is the fulfillment of all the Lord's purposes in the law. As we sing in the Christmas carol, O Holy Night, truly He taught us to love one another. His law is love and His gospel is peace. Under the new covenant, we're not bound by laws written on tablets of stone, but we are led to love by the very Spirit of God who is in our hearts. As Paul wrote in Galatians 5.18, if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law. 
The Old Testament law, including the ten words, are for Christians today descriptive of who God is, of what God desires, and of how He works in the world. But the law is not prescriptive, binding upon us. We're not led by a law outside of us. We're led by the Spirit who lives within us. And we live in conformity to love. And we fulfill those laws. For love does no harm to its neighbor. Love loves the Lord with all its heart, soul, mind, and strength. The law and the ten words offer us today authoritative information about the unchanging character of God, but it doesn't put us under obligation to follow specific expressions of His unchanging character to Israel as expressed in the law. We're not free to cast off morality as revealed in the ten words because God's still the same today and He hasn't changed since delivering the ten words. The ten words reveal God's character, His desires, His intentions, just as true today as they were then. So Paul wrote, I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. In fact, Christ came, and as we already heard in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, He reaffirmed many of the commands and reapplied them, and in fact, deepened them to a point that we can't live them externally. We need a heart change. And for a heart change... We need a spirit to change us. If we live in conformity to the ten words today, we don't do so because we're obligated to tablets of stone. We live in conformity because we're led by a spirit to live the law of Christ, to love the Lord and love our neighbor as ourselves. We live the law of love empowered by the spirit. As we sang this morning, I would be yours alone and live so all to see the strength to follow your commands that could never come from me, but from the Spirit within who causes me to live the law of love, to love God and to love my neighbor and thus fulfill the Ten Commandments and more. So finally, friends, one last and brief and final comment. What should we do today about the Sabbath that I just created a big deal about? Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul says the festivals and the Sabbath itself were but a shadow, pointing forward to the substance, the fulfillment, and the fulfillment is Christ. Do you remember how many times Jesus got in trouble with the religious leaders for breaking their traditions around the keeping of the Sabbath. He did that, and then he explained why he was doing it in Matthew 12, verse 8. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Friends, in Jesus Christ, something greater than the Sabbath is here. Something greater than the Sabbath is here. He's the substance, the fulfillment, the Sabbath rest that the Lord offered His people. So it is that Jesus could invite His followers and can invite you today, as in Matthew 11:18, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The rest that was offered on the Sabbath is now being offered in Christ. Not just on one day, but always, that you might rest in Him. You don't need to toil anymore for your salvation. You don't need to strive to fulfill a law that you can't fulfill. You can rest in the work of Jesus Christ for something greater than the Sabbath has come. A word greater than the ten words has been spoken. A prophet greater than Moses has been revealed. His law is love. His gospel is peace. 
and we can find rest in Him. And friends, have mercy. Let's pray. Father, there is a lot here today. There is a lot in there. And I pray that you would bring to mind and help us to remember what we need to remember. Help us to forget what we need to forget. But most importantly, draw us to yourself. Speak to us and help us to respond to what it is that you're saying. Bring to mind those things that you need to bring to mind. Because what you most desire is a relationship with us. A relationship of love. And so, Father, draw us to yourself. Help us to know you more. To follow you more closely. And may we find rest, not in our success and in our achievements, not in the fulfillment, our fulfillment of the law. May we find rest in Jesus Christ and Him alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.